0: All right, if you have your Bibles with you, please take them out. Open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter as we return again to Hebrews. So, Hebrews chapter six, and we will begin reading this morning again at verse four. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for it by those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God, but... If it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that we would begin to consider these things with an eye that sees the truth of your word. We pray, God, that as we approach your word this day, that you would let your word be spoken with truth and with power. I pray for your unction to be upon me, God, your truth to be spoken. I pray that you would leave anything that I might say which is wrong or or off target, just leave it dead on the ground. But let the living word of God be spoken into our hearts with truth and power. Let that which you have to say to your people pierce us deeply and let it drive into our very hearts and souls, God, that we would be transformed by it. God, I pray that you would let this people in this place love you with all that they are. And I pray, God, that you would allow that all who are within the sound of my voice, by whatever means they hear it, would come to know the Christ and would love you for all that you are. And I pray, God, that the message of the gospel would go forth through them unto the uttermost ends of the earth, that this land would be turned over to you, and that Christ would be exalted. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are um, coming to the, uh, I don't want to call it the difficult part. This whole passage has been a little difficult. It has required some, some additional explanation, a little slow pace, a little hard thought. But this is going to take some hard thought from all of us this morning. So I want you to dial in your ears and get your thinking caps on. There's some ground we need to cover um, before we get to the meat of what I want to say, um, so what is it about this issue of apostasy, which makes it so that God is not willing to restore them? so when somebody says they believe in God and gives some evidence that they believe in God and then eventually says, "You know what i don 't buy it anymore," and they walk away. What is it about that apostasy which which makes them um, someone that god says i 'm not going to restore them scripture says it 's impossible um, Isn't it true that nothing is impossible for God? Doesn't the scripture tell us that as well? Um, But we need to understand that this matter is not about God's ability to save them after they have apostatized, but it's about his willingness. The one who is apostate has partaken of much spiritual blessing and has spurned them all. Most damningly, he has spurned the Christ who died for sinners. So I want to think with you first of all about what impossible means and about how the scripture uses it. So the very first thing that we understand that is impossible are things which are inconsistent with God's very nature. The scripture tells us that God cannot lie. The scripture tells us that God cannot sin. The scripture tells us that God cannot commit evil. So something that is contrary to his very nature is impossible for God by nature of who he is. And again, something that is impossible for God is has to be intricately connected to his will and his desire. He has the power to do whatever he wants to do. But he will not do anything that is inconsistent with his essential nature. This is because, at the bottom of it, God is good. There is also, however, the reality that this means there are things which we must view as impossible simply because God has absolutely decreed that they shall not happen. So, for instance, if we look at 1 Samuel 15, 28, and 29, and we're not going to turn there. I'll just give you the background for it. This is when Saul is cast out as king over Israel. He has refused to slay the, the pagan king, Agog, and he has, um, he has lied about it. They, they you know the, the whole thing, I hear the lowing of cattle, and we were going to offer sacrifices, and all this stuff. And God is, tells him through the prophet Samuel, because you rejected my word, I have rejected you as king. And I'm going to raise up for myself another who will love me and honor me and obey me. And I'm not going to have your posterity involved in this at all. You say, well, it doesn't say anything about anything being impossible. But if you just kind of read between the lines and think about what God told him, is it now possible that Saul's son, Jonathan, will ever become king? No. He's next in line for the throne, but is he going to become king? No, he's going to become dead. God is going to take away the entire posterity of Saul. And he's going to make sure that none of Saul's line ever sits on the throne of Israel again. So it is impossible for Saul to reverse this decision. It's impossible for Saul to do anything that will change God's mind about what he has already decreed to be. And this is an important thing for us to understand because God knows what God is going to do. God knows what he has planned from the beginning. Ephesians 1 tells us that God has ordered all things according to the purpose of his will, which he decreed in Christ before the foundations of eternity. Everything that is, is according to the will of God. You say, well, then why in the world do we even bother praying because it doesn't change anything? Well, in one sense, you're right. It doesn't change anything except it changes you. Prayer changes us. It doesn't change God's mind. It doesn't change his will, it doesn't change his purpose, it doesn't change his intent. It changes us. And we pray, not only because we need to be changed and brought into alignment with what God thinks and says and does, but we also pray because God has given us the ability to participate with him in his work among the nations as we pray. Um, It is the most powerful thing that you can imagine to know that God has called you to join with him in prayer and that he is pleased to use those prayers that he calls you to, to give for the advancement of the kingdom of God and for the work that is going on among the nations. It is, uh, it's the cheapest way that you can contribute to missions. It's not the only way you should, but it's the cheapest way you can contribute to missions. It only costs you a little bit of time. Okay? Okay. So in the midst of everything that we do, we must understand that when God says he's not going to do something, God means he's not going to do something. Now to balance this out, we need to understand that we cannot know any more about what's impossible with God in this regard, except where it's in accord with his essential nature. Because God doesn't tell us who he's going to save, he doesn't tell us what he's going to do, except in very specific instances when he gives... Prophecy and scripture to tell us how things are going to play out. As a general rule, he gives us the guideline of his word. He gives us the revealed will that is given to us in his word. But he doesn't give us the secret things. Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to God, but to us and to our generations belong the revealed things of God. And I, I botched that quote, but that's the idea. Um, it tells us that, that the teaching of the prophets and the, and, the, and the law are given to us and to our children. So God gives us his word and tells us, by my word, you will know what I want for you. This is my express revealed will. But he has a secret will that he doesn't tell us. And that secret will of God always comes to pass. Um, So we can't know what it is. Nobody knows but God what he's going to do and what he has planned. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 and 14 says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him, who taught him the path of justice, who taught him knowledge, who showed him the way of understanding? And of course, the answer to all of these questions is no one. Nobody has that power. Paul quotes that in Romans 11, verses 34 and 35. It says, Who has has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to them? Therefore, things are either possible or impossible, depending on whether or not God has decreed them to be. And the only way that we can know what those things are is to look back at it. Because the only way that we can know what our future is, is when it has become our past. Amen? So you can look at something and you can say, God willed this to be. And you can know that because it happened. You may not know all the reasons why, and you can't look forward and say, I know without doubt that God has willed this thing that I want to be. You can pray for it. You can hope for it. You can plead for it. But you need to do all of those things with an honest heart which says, Lord, you're God, and you know what you're going to do, and what you're going to do will be best. Um, You know, I, I I was the person with Dan that just, I wasn't going to believe that he was going to die. I was determined that I was going to continue praying for his healing until God took him. And I did. But clearly God said no. Does that mean that God failed? No. Does it mean I shouldn't have been praying for his healing? No. It means that God did what God did. And through all of those prayers and through all of that time, God was doing work in me. And that's as it should be. That's his will. That's his work. That's his power. So I want to bring all of that thought to bear as we think about these people that are apostate. These people that believed Christ on the, exi- on the outside, on the exterior, they believed Christ to some degree, they, they said they, they were his, they confessed him, they gave a, a strong enough confession that, that the church accepted them and said, this is my brother, this is my sister, and then something happened, and they abandoned their faith in Christ. They abandon them so fully that the church is instructed by God that he is actually leaving them to their own means. He is damning them to hell because nobody can come to God unless they are effectually called by God. Now, this is not talking about the general call of the gospel. The general call of the gospel goes out every time the gospel is preached. The general call of the gospel is the plain, simple, understandable words that we speak, which any person who is conscious can hear and have some sense of understanding. Now, they may not agree with it, and they certainly will not be able to understand all of the spiritual depths, but the simple truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people, and that anyone who cries out to him for mercy can be saved, that's something a two-year-old can understand. It's very simple stuff. That's the general call of the gospel. But the problem is that nobody will respond to the general call of the gospel until the Spirit himself comes alongside and calls them to life. Scripture says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The Spirit calls somebody to life, and in that moment, their heart is changed, their mind is changed, their perspective is changed, their will is altered by the power of God, and now they desire God. That is the effectual calling of God. The specific definition of the effectual calling, I was going to have Lester sing the song with me, but we won't do it. It says, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. I'll read that again. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's his work. That's his power. And he comes to bear on us and calls us to life. And if he is not going to do that, no matter how much knowledge you've got stuffed in here about religious things, you cannot be saved apart from God's Spirit calling you to life. It is impossible. So what the Scripture is telling us is that these people who walked in some semblance of grace, and as we've read, we've been working through this passage now for almost two months, and, and as we look at the things that are talked about, those five descriptors that are given in between verses 4 and 6, wherein it talks about how these people looked like Christians, but they weren't. What we see is that there was some external evidence that they might have belonged to God, so much so that the church themselves were deceived as to whether or not these people were Christians. But in the end, these people turned away from God and rejected the truth. They rejected the the things that they had been given. They, They rejected those parts that were important. Now, the church has a responsibility to guard herself and to guard the people in it against this evil with sound doctrine, which is birthed from the word of God, with spiritually powerful preaching empowered by the spirit of God, and with brotherly love, which is willing to bring others back from the edge when they're in danger. We must be on our guard for both our own souls and the souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that scripturally and spiritually, you have an obligation to be in each other's business. You have an obligation to be communing with one another and asking questions and and sharing what God's doing in your life. And and be aware that the things that will cause somebody to, to fall away is a basic absence of truth. So be discerning. What causes somebody to fall away is the fact that the truth was never in them. But before that happens in the end, they can still be reached. So if somebody's believing something that's wrong, press the truth. Don't just let it go. Don't just go, well, it's not my business. You have your faith and I have mine. No. If you do that, you're essentially being complicit in their damnation. Speak the truth. Come to them. Say, brother, look, this is what the scripture says. It should never be such a thing that somebody would look at the plain truth of Scripture and say, well, it doesn't matter to me. I had that conversation with a girl at camp this week. Uh, Brother Jim and I were sitting at the breakfast table the last day we were there. And this girl came up and she said, you know, I wish you'd let me preach. And Jim said, well, I'm not going to do that. The Scripture is really plain that we're not going to do that. Well, why won't you let me? Well, because God says no. And she looked us right in the eye and said, I don't care. Okay. Jim turned to me and we went on with breakfast. The conversation's over at that point. I mean, we, we've, we've told her the truth and he's not going to stand there and have that argument in that place. But understand that when somebody says to you something like that, they're telling you something about the condition of their soul. Okay? I've had people say to me, I have a problem with what you're preaching. Well, let's talk about it. What, what am I preaching that's unscriptural? Oh, it's all biblical. I just don't like it. Okay. I don't know what to do with that. We're done. You're, you're incorrect. You're not thinking biblically. I'll pray for you. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. So in the end, when somebody reveals something like that, they need to be on your radar as somebody who needs the truth. Come back to them with the scripture and say, this is the very word of God to you. This is not my opinion. But if you're going to do that, you better make sure that what you're telling them is the word of God and not your opinion. Because we're all full of opinions. We're all full of things that we're sure are true because they were told to us or they were taught to us or we've always believed them. And part of this dynamic is us engaging with those things ourselves and saying, Lord, bring the truth to my heart. Bring the truth to my mind. Help me understand what's real and what isn't. Help me understand and discern the difference between the things that I've always believed and the things that are true. I promise you from personal difficult experience, those are challenging, hard, blessed times when God just rips out the things that you believe just because you've been told them and brings the scripture to bear and shows you truth. It it will change everything in your life. It will transform your understanding of Scripture. And it will transform your very relationship with God. Because when your relationship with God is based on a lie, guess what? You don't have a good relationship with Him. And if that lie is deep enough, you don't have a relationship with Him at all. So be mindful of each other. Be careful of each other. Be attentive to what's going on and what people are saying and believing. Step into those conversations have the the courage to stand up and say, this is truth, and this is what the Bible says, and this is the reality of, of who Christ is, and these are the things that we must know and believe. Because in the end, for us not to do that is to abandon somebody. So when somebody belonging to the church, who professed Christ, who was attesting to their salvation, suddenly, and I use air quotes there because it's not really sudden, if the church is paying attention, you'll see the signs long before it reaches this point. But when they suddenly just reverse their position and say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm done with religion. I'm done with these things. And they walk away. That person is apostate. You, you might go to them once or twice and plead with them and argue with them and say, have, have you, were you hit on the head? Did, did, have you lost your mind? Do you need medication? What's going on? Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a visceral, emotional reaction to something that's just destroying them inside. But if somebody has, has positioned themselves, having abandoned the faith, having abandoned the church, and positions themselves intentionally contrary to the things of God, to seek to destroy the kingdom, that person is apostate. And as far as the church is concerned, what the scripture tells us is that it is impossible for them to be restored. So do not waste your time. If they begin declaring through word and deed that they affirm no faith in Christ, truly they deny it entirely. If they set themselves against the kingdom and its work, if they attack and seek to tear down the work of the church, and if they refute the scripture and refuse its truth, this person has separated them from the church, and they have separated themselves from the visible kingdom of God. And so far as we might know, they have completely separated themselves from any hope of salvation. Now, it's important to hit again the note that this is somebody who was a part of us. This is somebody who was a part of the church. This is somebody who we would have looked at and said, this is my brother. This is my sister. This is not the pagan down the street who's always hated God. Okay? This is somebody who has been given light and understanding. And that's the reason why the writer of Hebrews goes through those five things that that we've been looking at over, over the last couple of months. Because those are all extraordinary measures of grace that give people a chance to know the truth, that hold them to a higher standard of accountability, that show them what's been done in their lives. This is somebody who professed faith with enough conviction that the church was satisfied on their conversion and accepted them as a part of the body. This is somebody who has openly decided that they have no part in Christ. This is somebody that John was talking about in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 18 and following. So turn there if you would. 1 John 2. Verses 18 and 19. It says this. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. What is he telling us? First of all, I want you to notice what he calls them. He doesn't just call them apostate. He calls them antichrists. He calls them somebody who is, who is actively opposed to the person of Christ. But notice where they came from. Antichrist is not going to be some, somebody that, that is just, has always hated God and has decided, you know, I don't like that church because they're making it uncomfortable for me in this town. Those days will be coming. Antichrist is somebody who was of us and went out from us and now seeks to destroy us. This is somebody that John says was never a believer. They have been cast out, they have been set aside. And God says, they have no hope of repentance because I will not call them to repentance. Now, it's important to note that this is not about just a particular sin. This is not just about somebody who who falls into adultery or suddenly starts stealing from his employer or, or gets in a fit of rage and murders somebody. This is not about a particular sin. This is about somebody who systematically in their life and will and purpose and everything sets themselves against the knowledge of God who used to be a believer, who used to profess belief in Christ, who used to be a part of us. It's important to remember that this person who has turned away will find that God is not willing to give them the effectual calling. They have had more than enough natural light and more than enough spiritual light, and they have enjoyed a measure of spiritual enlightenment, not complete, but more than average. It's also important to note that this is a different matter from church discipline. Okay, Church discipline is always done with the effort and the intention that the person who is cut off from us for a season would be restored to us after they repent. Church discipline is an action of the church to remove somebody for sin or rebellion. Somebody who has been unwilling to repent, unwilling to reform, unwilling to, to come under obedience to the law of Christ and to be un they're unresponsive to the discipline of the church in its progression. At the end, church discipline says, you are not one of us, we're we don't we're not sure you're saved, so we're going to treat you like a lost person and we're going to share the gospel with you. And we're going to do our best to restore you unto Christ. And if you're not saved, we want to see you saved. And if you are saved, we want to see you repent. Get your head screwed on straight and come back. Church discipline is an action of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that an apostate shouldn't also be removed from membership. <laughs> they should be. So if somebody goes apostate on us and, and, and they were a member, it, the church would remove them from its membership. But the church might remove somebody from membership for egregious sin, unrepentant, and believe that they are saved and need to be restored, as we should. This is healthy. This is well. This is right and righteous. But somebody who is apostate is cast off and left. It is impossible that they would be restored. So I want to think with you about why this is. that's, That's really all background. I want to think with you this morning about what's really in play here. Why this is such a big deal in the sight of God. Why does he say, I am not willing to restore them. I am not willing to call them. I am not willing to give them the effectual calling of the Spirit that will make them live and make them repent. Why is God saying this? Well, I want to read with you the passage in Hebrews again. And I want to focus our attention on verse 6. It says, if they fall away, it's impossible. And the impossible comes in at verse 4, so we'll just cut out the whole clause in between. For it's impossible, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And here's the salient point. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. So, they are crucifying Jesus again for themselves. Well, what does that mean? It means that in their arrogance, they are attempting to make Christ ridiculous. They are, they are showing Christ as, as less than he is, and, and in that, that desire to be their own God, and their, that desire to be their own everything, they are, they are desiring to display Christ um, as, as foolish and ridiculous, and, and for them to come back would be to say, all of this is because Jesus just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that I had this. It wasn't enough that I was exposed to these things. They have no real regard for the shame that Jesus already endured on the cross. Okay, So look at me at Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 29, Hebrews 10, verse 29 gives us this. It says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, And insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me ask you this question When God looks at the cross of Christ, how does he see it? Does he see it as something worthy of honor? Does he see it as something worthy of deepest respect? Does he see the death of Christ on the cross worthy of the love and affection of his people regardless of how they feel about their lives? Does he see what Christ endured on our behalf as something to be revered and honored and loved? Yes, he does. Jesus bore the wrath of God. The scripture tells us it pleased God to crush him. That is not something light. That is not something small. That is not something insignificant. That is something profoundly majestic and gloriously, terribly beautiful. And when God sees the cross of Christ, he sees it in terms of what it cost him to do. What it cost Christ of what he allowed Christ to pay on our behalf, of what Christ willingly took in our place. And all of this is too precious and too glorious and too profound and too important to be treated like mud on your shoes, which is exactly what somebody does when they look at Jesus and say, yeah, I believe in you, and then things go bad. I don't believe in you, I hate you, and I never want anything to do with you. They're treating Jesus like he's garbage. And God says when somebody who's been given this much light turns away from it and seeks to destroy Christ, I will not sanction that by bringing them back because it makes what Christ did of no effect. There is a danger that we need to be aware of. And there is a danger where a person might deceive themselves into believing that they're saved and end up hating Christ and go so far in that hatred of Christ that they are forever cut off from any hope of salvation. God says that the blood of Jesus is too precious. Look at Zechariah chapter uh, 12. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. and They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plays of Megiddo. And in the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, their wives by themselves. What is Zachariah giving us? He's giving us insight into the way that when we see Christ crucified, it is a deeply, powerfully personal thing. And he says, I will pour out my spirit of grace and mercy on this people, and they will see Christ's death as beautiful. They will look on the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. Beloved, we, when we look on Jesus, there should always be this this mixed cup of love and sorrow, this mixed cup of beauty and terror, this mixed cup of of our hearts being broken for what Christ had to endure on our behalf. This is not a light thing. This is not a small thing. This is everything. And it should should define the way that we live our lives because actions that are unworthy of Christ defile that. They defile that in our sight and they defile that in the sight of all to whom they, they are seen by. You know what? You can get angry at somebody and you can lip off and you can drag them through the mud and you can say terrible things and you can know that your words had an impact. You can lash out at somebody and strike them and you can know that you had an impact. You can break your covenants and break your word and break your promises and you can know that those things that you do, they matter to the people to whom you do it. But you can know this too. Every single one of those actions and a million more that I could name. They bring shame to the cross of Christ. They bring dishonor to the blood that was spilt for us. And they do it because when we do those things, we, the people of God, are counting the blood of Christ as of less importance than it is. Because the blood of Christ is designed to cleanse us from all iniquity. It's designed to, to make us holy. And we need to remember and we need to, to, to glory in the cross of Christ. We need to glory in his death. We need to re- rejoice that God loved us this much, but at the same time that we rejoice, we must be broken over it. Oh God, my sin, what has it done? What what has ruined me has crushed Christ. What has destroyed my life has slain him. Oh, God, have mercy on me. See, at the heart of Christian faith is this humility, this understanding of who we actually are inside of who God really is. And all arrogance that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, all arrogance that exalts itself against the power of God, all arrogance that exalts itself against holiness is an affront to the cross of Christ. It's a terror. And it's a terrible thing. And it's something that all of us should be broken about when it rises up in us. The way to cultivate this is to consider the cross of Christ. Consider His death. And I'm not talking about His physical suffering. His physical suffering was the least of it. As terrible as it was, His physical suffering was the smallest portion. Do you know what happened on the cross of Christ? the wrath of God for sin was poured out on the Lamb. The cup of God's wrath was put into the hands of Jesus and He drank your portion of hell to the dregs. That's what happened on the cross. And you cannot begin to fathom what it cost Him. You cannot begin to understand the agony that He went through. And this should change you. It should make you different. It should make you love him more. So when somebody despises him, takes his name, wears it for a while, and then decides, yeah, I don't really like this. This coat doesn't fit very well. I'm going to cut it up and use it for paper in the bathroom. They're putting him to open shame. The writer of Hebrews says, they cannot be restored under repentance because to their shame, they crucify the Son of God again and put him to open shame. You see, Jesus endured shame in his incarnation. Do you ever consider that? How much shame he endured just becoming a man? I don't need to be graphic in this, but just think about the things that you do with your body and in your body just to be alive. You eat, food is digested, food comes out. Or the remains of food comes out. There's icky stuff that has to go on with that. And guess what? Jesus had to do all of that. This is God we're talking about. He endured shame. He endured this this humanity which which was just wrong in every way. And God put him to shame on the cross. He became our sin. This one who knew no sin, this one who had lived for all of eternity, never having any beginning, never having any end, always lived in perfect communion with God the Father. He and the Father were one. But the Scripture tells us that when he was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now look, this wasn't about God just couldn't stand to see what the mean Romans were doing to Jesus. It was about God knew that Jesus had become the sin of his people. And that separated him from God. He became shameful in the sight of God. And God, in his mercy, because he loved his Son, covered the land with darkness when that happened so that nobody else could see Jesus being shamed like that. But you have to know It happened. You have to know that God separated himself from Christ. Tony pointed out at Dan's service yesterday that over 70 times in the Scripture, Jesus calls God Father. But there's only one time in all of the Scripture that Jesus ever called him God. And it was then. It was at the moment that he was separated from him and knew what it was to be us. That shame. The scripture tells us Jesus willingly knew. He shamed the shame. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Since we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the Hebrew or the Greek literal there, despising its shame, says he shamed the shame. He brought shame upon the shame that was on him. Because in the end, what he endured, he endured willingly, driven by love for his people. He endured it on our behalf because he was willing to bear that price so that we might be his. He endured it knowing that his own life was forfeit and that at least for a time, his own honor in the sight of his father, who he had obeyed from the very beginning, was also forfeit. He shamed that shame. He despised it. And through that shaming of the shame, he emerged victorious. And so he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. No shame can touch him, for he has been raised with all glory. And God is unwilling that any of us who proclaim the name of Jesus would give him shame by how we live or by how we reject him. He is absolutely unwilling that his people would do that. So when somebody who names the name of Christ, whether they were A casual believer or somebody that the church really believed was saved and they apostatize and they leave the body. They leave the church. They begin to attack the kingdom. They begin to do all of these things. God is not going to just overlook that. Because what hangs in the balance is this death of Christ and the shame that Christ bore on our behalf and the triumph and the victory and the honor that He attained through it. Beloved, I can't say strongly enough how important this is. Because shame is exactly the opposite of how we are supposed to treat Jesus. Amen? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5, we read this. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testifies in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have set him over the work of your hands, and have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. This is how we should see Christ crowned with glory and honor. We should see Christ as exalted by the Father. We should see Christ as lifted up, high in the heavens. We should see Christ in his glory, and we should see Christ in the majesty of his truth. We should see Jesus as the scripture defines Jesus. We should not see him as somebody according to our own wicked imaginations. We should not see him as somebody who's complicit with our sins because he's just so desperate to have a friend. Oh, please don't be mad at me. I'll I'll let you be whatever you want to be. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible commands and expects obedience. And he deserves to be obeyed. He deserves to be honored. He deserves to be loved and revered. Listen to how the scripture defines him and describes him in the book of Revelation. Revelation and chapter 5. We'll just read this. Use your most sanctified imagination and hear the word of the Lord. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them. I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now, did you notice that John said uh, they sang a new song? Why did he say that? Because prior to this, the song had been this. If we look at chapter 4, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you they exist and were created. That was the song of praise until the Lamb came on the scene. And when Jesus Christ entered and took the scroll from the hand of the Father, the scripture tells us that all of heaven began to sing his praises. Just consider for a moment what that communicates to us. Just consider for a moment how profound it is that heaven would rightly and worthily and in a holy fashion stop singing praises to the Father and instead sing praises to the Son. What does that tell us about the honor that God has willingly given him for what he accomplished in our place? You see, beloved, our calling is to love him as he deserves to be loved. Which means there should never be in us or among us or or even, even near us the scent of anything that dishonors him. We ought to be a people who walk in obedience and holiness because of the God who is and the Christ who died in our place. To to do any less is to act in a way that is exactly the opposite of how God sees him. It is to act in a way that is exactly the opposite of who he really is. So, When a person walks in a way that is contrary to truth and begins to diverge from the truth in in willing error and ultimately ends up apostatizing, it should not be shocking to us to, to hear God say, I will not restore them. And our anxiety over that is because at the bottom of it, we love people more than we love God. And that ought not to be the case. We're called to love God more than anything. God does. He loves himself more than he loves people. He loves his glory more than he loves people. But he loves people through his glory, which is a wondrous thing, because he calls us to be his children. He makes us his children. He does all that is needful so that we might be found with him. But shame and disdain is unfortunately the exact pattern that we have always adopted with God when we sin. Look at Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. And starting at verse 7. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into a mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. What is Jesus saying? That the pattern that the people have adopted for all of their lives is a pattern that is not honoring to Him. Look at John chapter 5, starting at verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus telling us? He's telling the Pharisees that, yes, scriptures are important. They teach me. They teach you of who I am. But here's the bottom line. It is very possible to have a head stuffed full of knowledge and a heart empty of Christ. It is very possible to have a head that knows everything religious and can state all the facts and quote all the Bible and recite all the things, but who doesn't know Christ. And Jesus said this defined the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day. Instead of seeking honor from God, they sought honor from men. Instead of seeking honor from Christ... They sought honor from each other. They desired only that one another would look good in each other's eyes. This, beloved, is why God says the sin of apostasy. He will not relent and forgive. So, I want to just close this up with some practical application of warning. How we think about Jesus matters more than anything else we do. Okay? Holiness is important please do not mishear me. I want you to live holy lives. I want you to seek to live a life that is free of sin. Do the best that you can do to walk in obedience to God. Keep very short books with him. Repent when you sin. But all of that grows out of this understanding of just who Jesus is and just what was done to make you his own. All of that proceeds from the fact that you have been altered because regeneration produces a change in us. We begin to think like God. We begin to love what God loves. We begin to hate what God hates. And we begin to desire to live out true righteousness out of that love. So seek to love Christ. Seek to see Jesus for exactly who He is. Because that's the best way to guard your soul. The best way to protect yourself from ending up in this terrible error of becoming apostate and falling away from from this profession, which will prove to be false, is to love Christ. Because nobody can love Christ unless God opens their heart. So with all you have in you, seek after Christ. Seek to see Him as He is. Seek to love Him for who He is. Because God loves and honors the Son above everyone else. And above everything else. And let me say this plainly, if you do not love and honor the Son, you are not saved. Period. You can be the best person in the planet, you can be the most faithful person to some other religion, you can be the faithful person to your own religion, to, to the Christian religion, but if your heart is cold towards Christ and you do not love Him, you are communicating something deadly about the condition of your soul. Because everything that we are as followers of Christ grows out of love for Christ. He deserves honor and glory from us. First of all, because he's God. Amen? Amen. But also, he is the very word of creation. When God spoke, you tracking with me? There's a reason why John sort of mirrors Genesis in the beginning of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing was made without him. Why? Because God said, in the beginning, let there be, and there was. Jesus is the word of creation. Colossians tells us. Hebrews tells us. Ephesians tells us. All of the scripture reminds us that Jesus himself is the ordinance. He is the one who was the vessel and the tool and the power of creation. Everything that is came from Him. And Colossians tells us that everything that is holds together because Jesus is the the fiber that holds it together. You, you, You have atoms that bind together because Jesus holds you together. This is what the Scripture affirms for us. He deserves your honor for that. He is also the one who died to ransom His people. We've talked about that all morning long. He's the one who bore sin and endured wrath on our behalf. He is the one who loved us and He loves us still. He is the firstborn over all creation, and He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be loved. He is worthy to be honored. So guard your heart against that which makes Him less than He is in your eyes. You must fight with everything you have to resist any temptation to say, well, you know, Jesus isn't really all that. The matters of the heart are the matters that drive the real issues of our lives. And to play around with dishonoring Jesus runs a terrible risk. For our affections are ultimately what motivates us. You do what you love. This is always true. There, There is never a time when you, unless somebody's holding a gun to your head, when you make a decision to do anything that is not motivated by your affection. So if you want to walk in righteousness, you need to attend to your affections. You need to attend to what you love. You need to make sure that you are esteeming Christ as more and more, that you are honoring Christ as more and more. To allow disdain to creep into our hearts for him shows that something is wrong in our souls. So if at some point in your your walk you begin to find that, "Ah, I don't really, okay, yeah, Jesus, big deal. That's telling you something very important. Pay attention to that. If that disdain grows and spreads, it could be indicating that you're not really saved. And if that disdain becomes the actual flavor of your life and heart, it's showing that you're probably not saved. And if that disdain becomes so bad that you move from your now proven false confession of Christ and deny the faith and the blood of the Lamb that you claimed bought you, you run the dire risk of apostasy and from that darkness there is no return. To harden your heart against the glory of Christ is to run the risk of being cast off forever. So pay attention to this the more that you know who he is, the clearer that you see him as he is displayed in Scripture. The more light you have, the more grace you have, the more protection you have, the more accountability you have. Because to the one who has been given much, what's the Scripture say? Much will be required. So it is, in one sense, a double-edged sword. For the one who never hears the name of Jesus will die for their sin and they will go to hell for their sin and rebellion against God because the scripture tells us that there is enough of God written on the walls of their heart. There's enough of God on display in all of creation. We read it in the confession this morning or in the catechism this morning that that there is enough in nature to call man to, to be accountable before God but there's not enough to save them. We need to recognize the fact But the one who has never heard the name of Jesus is just as lost as the one who has. So your solution to that is not to say, well, then I just don't want to ever come to church and I don't want to hear anything and then I'll be okay. Not the right answer. The right answer is to love Christ. The right answer is to dive in with all that you are and dig in with everything you have in you and seek to know and to love and to see Christ. Read books that honor Christ. Listen to sermons that proclaim His glory. Read poetry that exalts Him. There, there, there are a million things. Read hymns. Take advantage of the richness of the church that has given you so much glory to see. Feed your soul on this. You must do this so that you honor Christ and love him more and more. Because the creeping horror of this disdain, it, it's it's subtle. And it's sly and it spreads in the darkness and so often we feed it by our inactivity we feed it with our toys and we feed it with our amusements the word amusement itself should give you some insight into that ah is the Greek word of negation muse is the Greek word for thought amuse means without thought so here we are How do we defend ourselves against apostasy? How do we make certain that we are found in Christ? There it is. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You honor the Christ who loves you and you love Him with everything you have in you and you unflinchingly examine your life and you unflinchingly examine your affection for Him and where you find it waning, recognize it as sin, repent of it and ask God to to inflame it more you run to the scriptures, you feed your soul with all that you have in you, and you take seriously the command of God, which is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. By doing this, you also learn to love the Christ who saved you, and He is worthy of that honor. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, you would not let them be an undue terror to us, but do let them be a caution. God, I pray that as we think about this love for Christ that is, God, it's so cold in us, I just pray that you would convict us and cause us to to repent, to run to you, to see Christ in his beauty, to lift high his name in our own hearts, God. Let us seek to honor the Christ who died for us. Let us seek to love him with all that we are and all that we have so that as we do this, he might receive the reward of his suffering, the full reward of his suffering, God. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who deserves all things, Jesus. Amen.